Hello and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast, episode 30, with the poet Kay Iver. Kay Iver is a non-binary trans poet from Mississippi. Their book, short film starring my beloved's Red Bronco, won the 2022 Ballard Spar Prize for Poetry from Milkweed Editions. Their poems have appeared in Boston Review, Gulf Coast, Poetry Northwest, Tri-Quarterly, The Adroit, and elsewhere. Iver is the 2021-2022 Ronald Wallace Fellow for Poetry at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. They have a PhD in poetry from Florida State University. Hi and welcome, Kay. Hi. You're going to start us off with a poem, please. Um, This is a poem from the book called Family of Origin Rewrite. My father teaches ethics at a university. My mother teaches ethics at a university. They save their money, buy a large bungalow in Connecticut. They continue saving enough to support the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and their baby. They read the news and wish kindness into our laws. One of them will say, Sweden hasn't been to war since 1812. The other says you can start a business in Sweden and get free healthcare. They're excited about my arrival. They remain calm when midnight cries wake them. My father waits for my mother to heal before asking for sex. She's good at saying no. She throws meditation and exercise and intense therapy at her trauma. Still goes to AA. When wrong, she promptly admits it. Every night she arrives home from the university. Her soft, low voice builds a replica in my throat. She wears minimal makeup cuts her nails down because who needs the fuss? When I walk into a room and see my father, I continue walking in. When my father and I leave the house, lots of women introduce themselves. When we get back, he tears their numbers over the trash. On weekends, my father and I dig in the dirt. I watch him plant lilac bulbs around the spruce. He lets my small hand pack the ground, affirms it as help. When my father puts me to bed with true stories of him sewing clothes for new mothers in Ukraine, I fall asleep fast. Thank you. Oh, I think it's an amazing poem to read first today. Um, because it touches on so many things in your book having to do with um, narrative and resisting narrative, although I'm not quite sure in the moment that's the right word I mean. Um, But I also think about recovery and recovery projects. Um, And I know before when we were just talking right before the podcast started about like, oh, what poem would you like to read at the beginning? And, And I mentioned that this poem um, does, does narrative work through a kind of, again, I say negative, but I don't mean it 
I, I kind of want a different word for that through a relief or through a difference or, um, you know, it's, it's saying something in a way that is implying so many other things. And so, um, you know, it's a way of, of telling and not telling. Um, and I was wondering, I was wondering if you wanted to say something about narrative in, in your book. Yeah. I mean, um, I started that poem as a kind of like opposite day <laughs> and, uh, often like, the fantasies of a life we could have had says, you know, it, they say so much um, about the life we had. And, you know, a lot of our fantasies in general, um, I think are just indicators of um, what one can be deprived of. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have been deprived of, you know, very basic needs, um, fantasies are about, you know, a kind of, um, a boring, um, you know, non, um, chaotic worlds. Um, I think that says a lot about, um, how much need there was, you know, um, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I, I don't know how not to uh, use narrative in a poem <laughs> mm. because uh, I think, you know, my brain, the way my brain works is, is um, it's very cinematic, you know, it, it kind of thinks in film in a way. And um, in one way I'm able to make sense of the films of the past that constantly try to play <laughs> in my hippocampus is um, creating some order to them through poetry. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I wrote maybe one high like one lyric poem this year for a new project, and um, I and then I thought maybe I'm maybe I'm in this new place of of uh, craft, um, but. And then I went back on what I say back on that narrative bullshit <laughs> because, um, yeah, it's just where I find a lot of, um, the truth and beauty somehow. Um, and lyric is really hard for me in some way or high lyric, um, or what some people define as high lyric, which is some definitions are, you know, language that in a poem that's like above everyday speech. Um, and I just don't know what that means. What is above everyday speech? <laughs> um, who gets to say what above is? I think everyday speech is beautiful and, um, in its own patterning and, mm -hmm. and especially if we use it to turn just like cliche, um, if we use those things to like turn them inside out, um, Yeah. I don't know how to avoid that. I don't know how to avoid narrative, even if it's not, you know, beginning, middle and an end, if they're just fragments, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because when I did my MFA, and I think this is like 2007 to 2010, narrative poetry was still, um, still really talked down on heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always been a narrative poet. So I think that was really hard. <laughs> so 
trying to find a way to kind of, and I think I just wrote terrible lyric. I think that's what happened was like, but then realizing that, oh, like the one poem that was really, I think pulling its weight in my manuscript, in my like thesis at the end was a very narrative poem. Um, But, and I, and I think it was less like people overtly saying that. And it was more just like implied all the time, especially the emphasis on like lyric sequence, which was God at the time. Um, so it's, it's, it's like really refreshing and, and, and healing to like, hear you say this about narrative. Um, and while you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, Dunn and, and John Dunn and how, I mean, you know, the vernacular and daily speech is so relative that like, we think of him as such a formal poet now, but like when he wrote, he, he was like upsetting to some people because he put so much vernacular rhythms into his poetry, um, which is, I just find fascinating. And, and that's one of the cool things that poetry does, right. Is that it can record um, aspects of speech that like other documents are not recording um, and mm-hmm. preserves them and keeps them. Um, and then I was also thinking about how you use punctuation in this poem to kind of put the brakes on narrative in a sense and to add that that um I want to say something like rhythmic resistance or like the sound resistance mm-hmm. um do you want to talk about your your period use or yeah <laughs> um it is one way of frustrating the reader potentially um if they want you know a com- a complete sequence of syntax um, within a sentence. Um, I'm hoping that it points to the title, um, the word rewrite, um, that the period is a chance to to let you know um, ways that this fan, you know, this um, reality has been rewritten um, into fantasy. Um, um go back to yeah so like the the part where um for instance um where the speaker says when i walk into a room um and see my father i continue walking in that syntax in an annual complete sentence is again very everyday language very um I'm, i'm not using even very precise or vivid words the word walk in a room (laughs) <laughs> continue walking like um and I'm hoping that by using this period I can um make that language a little more alive um in both the epiphany that in reality um this speaker um did not continue walking in the room <laughs> right when they saw their father um and um you know, that also points to other men in the book, probably also did not walk into rooms with, with other men in the book. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know, periods can seem so final, especially um, in our age um, right now. I just read one of those, I don't know if think piece is the right word. <laughs> um, but one of those like essays about Gen Z um, 
and how they're intimidated by periods and texts, you know, and, um, you know, there's a very, there's a, like, you know, I'm hoping what feels like a finality um, in between these um, breaks of syntax. Mm-hmm. But not every sentence is broken, you know, there's flow and then in some sentences, and then there's a break. Um, and I'm hoping that contrast of flow and break um, is felt. Um, but of course, you know, you can hear in workshops, um, like why isn't consistent? Why isn't it consistently broken all the way through? Or um, why not periods? Why you know just why not just spaces? You know. Mm. Um, but I trusted this one. Um, yeah, um, and I'm glad I did. Um, I wrote it in the spring of 2019. It was one of the mm. first I've written of these of these poems. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you trusted yourself um, because I've been reading, um, I, th- I was reading an older style book and it was saying like, if you think about like the comma and the semicolon and the period, and maybe they were talking about other ones too, but as, as like fragments of pause, then there's like an ascending order and the period, right. Is the longest pause. And so um and then they were like, of course it doesn't function that way. But then I, immediately I was like, that's really cool. I like thinking about that. Like, you know, that we're thinking in terms of length of pause. And um, I mean, it's funny too, because like, I don't really want to receive a text with a single period or a ha-ha with a period, but send me a text with 15 periods. And like, well, that's interesting. Like <laughs> what's happening there? Like that it becomes musical, right? That um, it's musical phrase and it's sense phrase. And so there are just some really delightful things that happen with sentences in this poem where the sentence isn't done yet, but you think it's done and it's not done. And so the sense alters as you move through the poem. Um, and I think that's really pleasurable. And um, I mean, there is the the kind of poem that has a period at the end of every line. So it's like in stopped literally, even though the sense continues throughout and that's doing like one kind of enjambment. But I think you have so much, you have so much more play with the enjambment using a period that way. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's particularly good. I think with, with family too, that hard stop. Yeah. Is there, um, I just want to interrupt and say, oh, please. I really love your work on family. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, yeah. Just while we're there. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. the ambivalence um, of your work and what you're, what you allow yourself to hold as far as tension between certain things. Um, is admirable. Well, thank you. Uh, I, you know, and I want to say that so you just read family of origin rewrite, and then you also have a family of origin content warning and um, poem earlier in your book. And it, when I got to that poem, I was just like, yes, <laughs> that is, that is the family of origin. And yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I just think there was some show we were watching the other day. Oh, was it? Oh, it was actually, it was white Lotus. It was white Lotus season one. And the most interesting people in at one point in the show was the family that was just so entirely dysfunctional and it's also so interesting like 
that families, they're so complicated and, um, and absolutely thoroughly interested, which is why I think they're so often in like thriller books and, um, like it, cause there's so many moving pieces and every single, like the minutes one person enters the room, things totally change. Um, and that dynamic, like it's ultimately so dynamic. Um, and I mean, I, I say that as someone who like has certain members of my family, I don't even speak to anymore. Like, it's like, wow, that dynamic needs to go. Um, so it's, it's very complicated and, um, I think narrative can handle it. I think poetry can handle it beautifully. Like the not knowingness, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the mystery of it. Yeah. Do you want to talk at all about the word Mississippi, which really threads its way throughout your collection, which to listeners just, I, I do love having a Southern poet on this podcast. So. (laughs) Yeah. Um, if that's too big, we can talk about something smaller. Like I was just thinking about how well C.T. Salazar um, (laughs) talks about the word. Uh, it's the first thought that came to my mind, um, like his poem series, um, like four snakes makes our flag. It's one way of talking about, and I didn't even know he was talking about Mississippi until recently. (laughs) And I love those poems. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously significant that it's, um, you know, um, a native American word, um, just like Tupelo, (laughs) um, all these names of, of tribes that are, you know, so many, most of them, um, no longer in Mississippi. Um, and the poem Tupelo with the strike through of it kind of, um, touches on that idea. Um, but also, um, because I'm not an authority on Native American impression, you know, I just talk about, you know, what has been, um, other things that have been erased that I know about, like um, uh, the beloved in the in the book whose mm-hmm. name is Missy, um, and so there's a Miss in there, and um, there's a poem in there called Mississippi Missing Missy, and then Miss with a dash, um, and you know I've thought about the all four of those words um, a lot since 2007 when when Missy died. And um, um, just, I don't know, there's a sound there that um, is interesting. Um, it's a sound that, you know, Missy would have not, would have rather not heard, you know. Um, but as you see in one of the poems, um, he did, or I think the second poem of the book, um, you know, he died before getting a new name or even announcing a new name or, um, I mean, he had tried on a few, but um, he still died as Missy. And um, and yet, if I don't say his name, he's erased, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a, just a kind of, I don't know, there's the pain of association, right? It, Mississippi wouldn't sound painful to me, right? If I hadn't grown up there. Um, and experienced what I experienced and lost what I lost. Um, not just Missy, but so, so um, much of what could have been 
I guess, you know, a grief of what could have been in, in terms of identity, and the kind of flourishing that, um, you know, everyone should be allowed to, to have. Yeah. I mean, my, I'm 40 and my first book is coming out. I don't think that is because I was born um, rich on the East Coast, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not queer and, mm-hmm. um, right. I, um, yeah, there's a just, I don't know, um, the hissing sound, you know, I do talk about in some of the, the poems, like, for Missy, who never got his new name. Um, and there is a, you know, that's this the snake sound, I guess, uh, that CT touches on so beautifully. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I could do this, like, free association, right, of the word Mississippi and end up with a lot of words that ended up in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I love rivers and um, right. yeah. like having a presence of, I think just water near us is so important. And, um, and you, you have one poem where the, where the Mississippi is you know, the river form is like moving through the center as um, I guess, you know, you could also call it visual caesura, um, but it's forming this like river negation trench down the center. And, um, yeah, I just, I think I really love that evocation in, you know, that our environment is in our poems and we can't, you know, it's like, you can't keep it out. I don't think it's like a river water. You can't, it just, it leaks in. Um, yeah. As like local waters do. Um, but since you mentioned it, would, would you like to read your poem to below? Oh, I can. Sure. Um, I haven't, this is the first time I've read from the book. (laughs) So exciting. I don't know what pages, what pages anything is on yet. Um, I'm actually going to have to look at the table of contents. (laughs) And in my copy, it's on page five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's right there. All right. Um, uh, it's called Tupelo, Mississippi, with a strike through the title. Crop dusters have gone missing. Storm clouds missing. Every owl has gone missing. Entire foothills. There are no dogwoods or foxes to mix, miss them. Radio towers are missing. An archive has always been missing. Unmarked graves have not been missed have been missed to death. Downtown is missing, the hardware store where Elvis bought his first guitar, the songs he robbed from juke joints. Original names for the dirt have been missing a long time. The namers have not been missed, have been missed terribly. A gospel just went missing. A gospel took all the blood it needed for its metaphor to work. My lover went missing today My lover went missing 15 years ago. When neighbors spoke to him, they spoke to someone else. I found his old letters missing from their hat box. Each penciled word called from my mother's chimney. The brick said nothing. Thank you. I I feel really drawn um, in your book to the poems it's not just absence or negation but um 
I mean, it is, but it's, those words just aren't doing it for me today. Like they're not enough. Like I mean the word negation, but I also don't mean the word. <laughs> so I'm struggling here. Um, but it's like this very presence full absence, right? That that's, it's like that. Like when I say negation, I don't mean, it's like a very positive negation. It's something that's like, it's very full of itself. Um, and I really connect with that, especially in, in terms of thinking about Southern narrative. And, um, and I haven't thought a lot about this at all, but as we were talking just a little before the podcast, um, and I mentioned to you the Sally Mann photographs in the deep South and what Cole Swenson has written about. And I looked up this quote. Um, so Cole Swenson says in all these photos of Sally Mann's, it's the damage. That's the thing that's really at work, the destruction of surface and its consequent insistence, the defiance of something as fragile as paper, as ephemeral as light, both equally torn apart and a single streak more like a cut. And again, damage isn't quite the right word. <laughs> Language is, you know, failing me in a sense, but um, that there's something about the surface and that you see so much at the surface. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'll need to think about it more. But I think it's like the right way to go about narrative in it's especially in the South where, you know, we kind of think about like, and sometimes we think about like the, the weird word, but like the fecundity of the South or like the overwhelming presence or the, all uh, the heat and the humidity and the kind of claustrophobia sometimes of the landscape and blah, 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 you know, um, like the too muchness, right. That is like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I grew up in fields where like they brought, um, sludge trucks out from the city and like fertilize the fields. And it was like, it was too much. It was definitely too much. Um, but, um, where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was like, a in a big Mennonite, um, yeah. like milk cow community. So we were like surrounded in fact, my eight-year-old is really hooked on Weird Al right now in Amish Paradise. Um, it is killing me. Like, it's just, I, every time he starts singing it, I just <laughs> raised a barn on Monday, raised one on Tuesday. It's just hilarious to me. But um, Well, I grew up on him, so that's... <laughs> Which have, I mean, those are some insistent rhythms. Yeah. The fullness of the absence, I think, that you were talking about. Um, I've been thinking about intensity a lot lately, <laughs> like, um, as probably my main tool, <laughs> um, especially with this new work I've been doing. Um, and I, I'm, I've been wondering about, you know, you're saying absence. I, I've talked to a lot of people who, because I'm, you know, we're poets and a lot of, we know a lot of people with intensity who live with intensity and, can't really feel a lot of things without intensity. Um, you, you know, joy, pain, and, and frustration. Um, and I had a light bulb moment the other day when one of my friends uh, said, I, even when I'm meditating or, you know, finding peace or whatever balance, I, I feel nothing with intensity, you know? 
and that's really that's really difficult and um and I wonder now you know now that you're saying this like this fullness if you're talking about this like I guess swelling of um absence that surface surfaces to the poem and if a lot of that is like yeah being able to <laughs> feel these griefs of of having you know lost something or being emptied of something you never had um that other people have or yeah um if if because I felt all of that with intensity um rather than numbness or um even like mild melancholy <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah um I don't know you called that to my attention um that the idea of feeling even nothing with 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 intensity yes yeah yeah and that somehow like that feel it that that feels very southern to me too and um just like (laughs) the bigness like I just feel like like something I always want to do in my poems but I don't like I always kind of want a barn there because it just barn feels just about the right size (laughs) like like big (laughs) so um Mm -hmm. yeah and just like full of dark space and Mm-hmm. hay and kittens room sometimes with spiders and everything like um it's such a happening place like yeah. or a very absent place so yeah 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 I think it's just a beautiful um new Tupelo Mississippi the kind of catalog of of absence or what's been taken away mm-hmm. um it's just such an incredible way, I think, to kind of paint a landscape or to mm-hmm. try to explain to someone, like, or to describe for someone or evoke something for someone uh, by taking it away is, um, yeah, incredible. So, I mean, you mentioned that you're, you, you have other, another project you're working on now and, um, and I'm totally here, like, to talk about you know, short film starring my beloved Red Bronco, like, because it's literally like the day this airs, like the next day is your publication date. And then you have your launch on the 18th of January. And so this is like so present and so real. Um, But I also know one of the gifts of having your book published is that you do move on to other writing projects. And like, sometimes it's just this, like, it's a shift, right? You're like, I did that. It's like, and also they're like, they take it away from you. They're like, you can't add any more poems. You're done. Um, so you have to, in some ways. And, you know, uh, Tyree Day says that like a book and the next book you write, they're more like cousins um, mm-hmm. than like brothers or, and I love that. And like, yeah, they are cousins. Um, but what are, may I ask what, what you're working on now or how you've turned or moved you know, they're definitely cousins. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah, the new book I'm working on now is all about queer desire. Um, and I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this new stuff. Um, you know, the short film is a lot about the energy I wrote from it, obviously intensity, but (laughs) intensity of excavation, right. Mm -hmm. And this is more immediate. Um, and um, I just wrote an essay that is going to drop in February about how this first 
love. <laughs> this first relationship was a prototype for my for intense relationships to come. Mm-hmm. And it's a letter to Missy about mm-hmm. just um how you know that you know having a first your first onset of desire and um longing um being embedded with shame and other otherization and mm-hmm. even threat you know what you know it was a life-threatening kind of um desire to have you know uh in and where and the time we were um yeah. and um so this new book is um exploring you know the intensity of queer desire the particularities of that and um even dangers of of desire and excess um and it kind of starts out with a wound and hopefully <laughs> with uh healthier safer experiences um reaches toward tenderness um not just with others but with oneself mm. um i mean that's the goal of it and um i have a lot of ambitions for it and it's a living draft you know i'm like interviewing people right now about their desires and mm. Um, Because I want it to feel like it's holding a lot of people's. um, Yeah. I've already bought bought trademarks for the title and I'm not going to say the title yet, but I'm still like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's, I don't know. But I talk about, I can talk about them both now. I mean, I've talked to CT about this before um, because we're doing a conference on poetics um, in February. And, um, I was like, how do I talk about a short film and this new book? Mm. Like, this new book is all I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, CT says the smart said the smart thing as they always do. And they said, well, at the heart of elegy is desire, you know. And I was like, of course, of course. Um, and there's so much desire in some of these elegies I wrote for Missy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, a lot of channeling, even though I wasn't necessarily in love with him when he died, um, still channeling that 14-year-old who was really in love with him, you know? And um, yeah, but so I talk about them as um, in some new poetics papers I've been writing um, called Elegy and Ecstasy. Um, and just, yeah, call in the poetics of queer desire. <laughs> uh, very simple, but um, yeah. And they're just, I think both of these books and at the heart of both of these um, manuscripts is the idea that, you know, for a lot of queer speakers in poems, um, you know, joy and grief are inches away. And um, yeah, Um, if you think about like, for instance, um, the desire mechanism, like how it functions in the body, it's there so that you go after the thing that you desire. It's that discomfort is there. So you fix the discomfort and get the thing that you want. Mm. Um, but if that process has been, you know, obstructed by culture, by parents, by you know, exorcists and preachers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, your parent, your mentors and teachers and um, everyone else in charge, and you don't have um, any way of getting it. Um, you have fantasy and you have obsession to kind of fill the void. And um, yeah, I mean, that's what we were forced to engage in. 
um, it started out really innocent with me and Missy, you know, as some of the poems say, and very quickly, um, you know, all we had were landlines, you know, yeah. <laughs> our parents broke us up. And so, um, you know, having that experience so young, mm-hmm. um, you know, can really do a lot to someone, you know, queer of my generation, you know, and older. Um, and I hear it, I hear it still, you know, in, in many uh, rural places, you know, I know people who are still in the closet and in their twenties in rural places. Um, and a lot of, I think a lot of uh, uh, queer people I know um, who have had their first relationships like that, you know, have just had a lot of trouble in, in um, you know, pursuing healthy relationships. Um, so this new work is exploring that. It's it's kind of like, for me, it's very much a sequel, mm. but one that will probably not mention Missy, um, but definitely, um, you know, <laughs> he's there in the residual, you know, uh, exploration and, and interrogation of, of, you know, what it means to want um, when your first experience is, you know, forbidden. Yeah. Yeah. Apologize for beating a dead horse. No, no. Um, you mentioned um, elegy and ecstasy is something, is that something you've written or something that's coming out or? It's a poetics paper that I've written and I'm presenting it at the conference and I'll probably, yeah, I'll probably try to publish it. Um, I hope so. You know, <laughs> like after, after, the season of mm-hmm. getting this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I thank you for saying, um, for, for like sharing more about your project. And um, I just, you know, I mentioned to you that um, I just spoke with Stephanie Burt, who will be on the podcast as well, to talk um, to read from We Are Mermaids, um, recently out from Grey Wolf. And I think I'm so. I'm so invested in that, you know, when we talk about queer desire, like we're also talking about community formation. Um, And I think that's so important. Like, it's not like it's something off by itself. Like, no, it's like takes place among people who know each other, you know? Um, And I just think that that's so like one of the things I kind of like watch for in books now is like alternative community formation because so many forms are are broken or the institutions are just corrupt or they're doing more harm than they are good. And, um, and I think poets, poets can imagine better futures, like poets can do that. And, you know, it doesn't, for me, I will say that caveat, um, it's, um, like whether it's like, an essay on like trees and cruising, like shout yeah. out to Carl Phillips, or whether it's managing poly relationships and childcare. It's like things that come out in Stephanie's book. Like, I just think that the, that's how we, that's how we actually grow and move together as people that, um, yeah. and, and like, why, why is, why is desire not a part of community or, you know, it's not separate. I just, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. And, to think about perhaps some of the ways art like separates those things or puts them together, depending on what it is. There's a lot of um, isolation. The idea of isolation often comes up with like queer and rural 
Um, and sometimes I kind of feel like, yes, but also if that's the only narrative or if that's the predominant one people want to talk about, or if there aren't others and there are others, um, that it's just, you know, it does, it is like richer and deeper than that as well. So yeah, I think just trying to veer away from the like one narrative syndrome that can happen sometimes. Totally. Um, I mean, a year and a half ago, I saw Desert Hearts for the first time and was just blown away by the reimagining of community. I mean, the film's about community, you know, it was beautiful. Um, I mean, two women were platonically having a bath. They were having a platonic bath. <laughs> fully ground women in the bathtub and the husband walks in and he's fine with it. Yeah. Well, and it was just, it was just like a Tuesday, you know, and, <laughs> and these two, you know, lesbians fall in love in community and they don't um, leave their lives because of oppression or, you know, or even just um, ideas of individual, um, the individual, right. Being separate. Mm-hmm. They stay in their lives, you know, even after they fall in love. I don't know. I found that so refreshing. And that movie was made in the late 70s, early 80s. I don't know. Mm. Just, yeah. Yeah. But um, it's an example of a, you know, rural community that was reimagined mm. um, before I was born. <laughs> yeah. More more like this. Um... <laughs> I just don't, you hardly ever see that, you know. Um, so I... Yeah, it's true. I kind of want to hear another poem, if you would, if you would like to. I'm reimagining. I maybe I'll read the last one in the book. Um, yeah, this is called "Because You Can't." Because you can't, I stand in front of paintings a long time and think about the bones once belonging to you, and how Egon Chalet could line a body into movement. Because you no longer have a shape, I've made a practice of nearness. A hawk lets me stroke her mid-flight. I let comments land in my mouth when they're small enough. My lover pushes all their weight on me because I asked. They flatten me into astonishment. Because nothing can astonish you, I tempt what's alive by doubting I could love it more. It's a neat trick. When I use it, raccoons visit often, their fingers closed around mud older than you. Missy, this is me moving on. There's a noon rain to get caught in and many clavicles to behold. I wish you could see this one, tilting across the century. Thank you. I was just thinking about elegy and how I need to write a book length elegy in one sense um in some ways that's like much bigger than anything Milton ever did <laughs> even though people love his uh, elegy for Lysidas um but you know it's again it's resisting closure um it's like that period right that there there are the pauses between the poems but the poems you keep they keep returning um, and that sense of return. Yeah. I don't know. I think that that's the best. That's, and that's sometimes when we know we have a project, right? It's when we can't, 
we can't let something go or we keep returning to it. And I think that we do need that obsession, that that's a good, good kind of artistic obsession. Um, and that's often how I know when I'm like, oh, I should write about this or oh, I just keep thinking about it. I just keep returning to it. And then you have kind of a touchstone um, and a muse. I mean, that's important too. I think I feel conflicted about, or not even conflicted. It's it's not an ambivalent feeling. Um, is that I wish he were here and this book was about something else. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I'm working on now is proof that it could have been something else. Um, and I certainly would have written poems if you were still here, you know, about this experience, you know, that we had. Um, it still would have been sad, you know, um, if you were still here and um, and he could read it. And um, that would be so nice. You know, yeah. um, it wouldn't be about his death, but of another kind, other kinds of death, you know, and, and uh, but not of his body. And I often think, you know, there's there can be no no real justice for his body, you know, like that ship has sailed at you know, um and yet, you know, so the irrational person the person in grief, you know, wants that to happen. And um, but I but this is the best for me, the best case scenario of mm. uh, of there being justice for his memory, um for me, um, his memory for me. I um yeah, I wanna make that as personal as I can, because, you know, I don't know how a lot of other people knew him, you know, yeah. um, but this is for me and, and yeah. this is the best thing that could have happened for me. Um, and, and grieving his memory and trying to, um, rebuild it. Um, so that is nice. Um, it's nice to have, you know, an actual artifact that I can open and close. Yeah that you know an elegy all the way through as you were talking about yeah and in the poems too I mean that that's something elegy does is that it memorializes and it, it like it creates a, a linguistic monument right and so like you can remember the person as they wanted to be remembered or you know as you really experience them um there are these lines from even Boland that mm they used to make me kind of mad and now I don't know, <laughs> but she says, um, in the end, it will not matter that I was a woman. I am sure of it. The body is a source, nothing more. There is a time for it. There is a certainty about the way it seeks its own dissolution. And I have a poem where I write like, it will always matter that you are a woman or that you were seen as a woman. Um, you know, like, because, as I don't know, to me, it's a little bit of a fantasy that, that I was a woman, like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think skeletons have become more and more some of my favorite things, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Um, Those are so beautiful. I mean, they're proof of so much, you know, mm -hmm. proof that we were here, you know? Um, yeah. And you know, the way they know things and the way language knows things um, and name, I think for me, naming is like much slower. It's slower to work to understand a name because it's, I don't know, there's something very sticky about a name, but mm -hmm. um, 
I know my like my pronouns changed in my writing before they changed anywhere else. Um, and so like things like that will like it's it's an easier kind of I don't know it just works it just yeah. it does. Um, so like thinking about gender queerness in writing and um, and I just knew like the first time I had a they in a poem and someone was like you should make that a she and I was like no. And then I was like, I didn't even really have a great reason, but I was like, no, it just feels like this feels right. And, um, and it felt weird that they wanted it to be, because I didn't want it to be any particular person was why mm-hmm. I wanted it. it was like a patient. Um, and so it's interesting. We are very, our language is, is very sticky and it's hard to shed and, um, and people get wedded to names. They really do. Uh-huh. It's it's just so much so that they're afraid of them. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, the archetypal fear of labels, for instance, you know? Yeah. Like I think that comes from actual deep belief in in naming mm-hmm. <laughs> and attachment to it. And it always, I mean, the politics of like who is doing the naming and who's changing their name and who gets to and who doesn't is always really interesting to me. Like, I'm like, look, guys, like that dude just said he likes to be called Pony and y'all are fine with that. He's Pony now. But <laughs> but like, I just shorten my name and suddenly it's hard for you. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. So um, that's always really interesting or like, for me, a name is like when someone asks you to like, tells you their name, like it's like an invitation. It's being welcomed into a kind of intimacy, even if we don't think of names as being that intimate, like they can be. And um, yeah, I don't know. I probably at some point in the future have an essay about just people, you know, the obsession with poets is naming and adamic and that kind of stuff, which makes my toes curl. But um <laughs> I'll have to think about it more, but yeah. And I think um, the word Mississippi in your book, like it's just, it's one of those words that it does contain so many different, so many different repetitions, so many different words. Um, I haven't actually like done the puzzle thing where you like try to figure out how many words are in it, but it just changes how you read the word miss in, in mm-hmm. your book entirely and longing and, Rivers in the South, too. And isn't it? It's one of those rivers that has, like, it's huge the way it changes across time, like where it is, literally where it is on the map in the riverbed. Like, right? Isn't the Mississippi like one of those that has, like, the, um, mm-hmm. I was looking at some diagram of it this summer, as one does. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Plantations tried to reshape it. And it said no. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love what Toni Morrison says about it having a memory, water yeah. having a memory, and rivers are indication of that. You know, like they're kind of like our teeth. You know, that have well, they'll move. You know, yeah. back to where they were if you let them. And but rivers are, you know, they're unstoppable. They just they didn't care where, you know, they were damned or tried to. Mm where they tried to have, you know, plantation houses uh, really close. Wow. <laughs> or 
hard to yeah like and and move and move um you know their actual um beds um the, those beds move right back and to me it says a lot about how big we think we are you know especially with our you know violences you know mm-hmm. how powerful we really think we are absolutely force the idea of force yeah. um and use because right rivers are just a site of in- incredible resource and travel and everything i mean it's just so mm-hmm. of course people who are using people are using them okay did you want to close us with a poem you know i'm just sliding in another poem request here just okay um i hope you can't hear it but a woodpecker is literally pecking my house so okay i will close with the title poem um it's called short film starring my beloved spread bronco i want the impossible another genre Time for opening shots of gravel, a small brick house where my beloved comes of age. McCullough Boulevard, its elevated loops taking him east, away from the flat suburbs. I want you to see his soccer cleats, thrown in the back, fitted for a girl's nine. The girls on his team deserve an entire storyline. The one in the passenger seat, trying not to look at him, surprised by her want. Her mother who knows and doesn't care deserves a bigger part, at least a stylist. Let the mothers who do care, who punish their daughter's desire with exile, let their punishment remind you that choosing genres is a luxury, not for the queers washing their own used cars. Shots this film can afford, mud on the wheels, abundant soap and water, more mud. The bumper sponged by my beloved's right hand. A night drive, a gaping moon. Watch my beloved reach for the knob. Let the moody synth of I'm on fire swallow the view. You won't see flames. Nothing that burns, burns a long time. Still, I need you to stay with it. This wide frame of a salvage yard. Our Bronco's new home of rust eating red. Watch everything I love now, flattening. Thank you. Thank you. It was so good talking to you. It was wonderful to hear your poems. And um, I'm so excited for your publication. And I hope all of our listeners find copies. Um, I'm going to add links to your book and your website to our show notes so listeners can find those there. And... Yeah. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much. Um, To see you again soon.